Uh, this is your Thursday Daily Delivery. I am Michael Rand. Plenty of stuff to talk about today. Going to get into some more Vikings discussion here in a little while. Some thoughts on Mike Zimmer. Some thoughts on a comparison between two quarterbacks that you might not uh, have thought to make a comparison between, but I am going to go there. Phil Miller, Twins beat writer, will also join me here in a little while to catch us up on the baseball offseason. The lockout is continuing, but it sounds like the two sides will resume discussions today after a lengthy layoff. Is there any hope there? Where do we stand with the start of spring training, with the the start of the regular season? And how is this all impacting the Twins, a team that still have a lot of roster moves to make, still don't have a lot of pitching on this year's team? It's going to be a mad scramble, uh, sounds like, from Phil Miller as soon as this is resolved. But first, what did I miss? Talk a little bit of Gophers men's and women's basketball here at the jump. We'll start with the men because that was the game on Wednesday that had a little bit more drama to it. We're not in the point, I think, where we're happy or satisfied with moral victories. And just in general, I don't like the idea of a moral victory. You you can still you can be you know satisfied with an effort w- without kind of diving into that category. So a last second loss at Michigan State, um, a team ranked in the top ten. They flashed a graphic during that game. Gophers haven't beaten a top ten team on the road in almost a decade, which means they did not do it at all during the Richard Pitino coaching era. Um, but to get close against Michigan State, to have that game tied 69-69 in the closing seconds, and you know, unfortunately for them to give up that layup at the end, um, you know, on a pretty good play by Michigan State, give them credit to lose 71-69, and to see big man Eric Curry go down in that final minute too. That felt, um, you know, I think at the start of the year, if you would have thought they're going to lose by two at Michigan State, you'd be like, okay, that's that's a pretty you know, we'll take that. I think this team has raised expectations enough, though, that, that still felt like a tough loss. Now, one and four in the Big Ten. Like I said, plenty to like from that game. I think that one kind of reaffirmed to me that this team will be more competitive than we thought. Um, and that one and four, by the way, includes three losses to Michigan State and Illinois combined. Both of those teams undefeated in the Big Ten, very good teams. We'll learn more about where this where this Gophers team is ultimately going to finish once they start playing teams that are a little bit closer in this in in the standings and in caliber to them. I mean, they still have that win at Michigan. They still, you know, their other loss was Indiana, which is off to a pretty good start this season. When they start to play Rutgers, Penn State. Northwestern, Maryland, Nebraska. That that's, you know, those are going to be their real opportunities to bank some wins and, and maybe kind of catch up in the standings or at least, you know, have have that respectable record that they were trending toward at the start of the year. But you no, know, I don't think there's any shame in this. Ben Johnson, head coach, um, broke down the final play and what he liked overall from the effort. It's a broken play a little bit. Um, I'd have to watch it. Again, um, you know, just going off a lot, but I think it was a broken play. Um, you know, gave up a little back cut, and able to get down here, and we kind of helped up the floor a little bit too late, and um, was able to get the give up the dump down. Um, but you know, I'll say this: um, 
you know, the fight that I thought our guys had um, to get it to that point. If there were a couple times during the game where they could have easily folded, and um, you know, it's a tough place to play. And, and they didn't give in to the crowd. They didn't give in to the momentum. They just kept coming, and they gave us a chance. And I think that's you know really all you can ask for is to give you a chance. And uh, and they did that. You know, and the real thing to watch going forward is how what what what's the health of Curry's ankle? Is he going to be out for? A couple weeks? Is it going to be out for six weeks? It looked pretty bad. He couldn't put any weight on it after he came down on it in that final minute. So we're going to have to see his status because they don't they don't have much depth, especially in the front court. And if he's out for any length of time, that would be a tough one to overcome. Not like they can't do it. They've been persevering all year. They've been overachieving to a large degree all year, but that would be a pretty tough one to overcome. So the rest of their season largely hinges on can they keep playing at a high level and is Eric Curry going to come back healthy sooner rather than later? Like I said at the jump, go for women's basketball part of this discussion. They beat Wisconsin 82-66 on Wednesday night. Lindsey Whalen 4-0 and as a head coach at Wisconsin. That, uh, that will earn you a lot of praise in Minnesota. The Gophers off to kind of a slow start this season but again a tough schedule for them early on as well let's see if they can pick things up a little bit more as the season goes along tough start to the year for Lindsay as well um, coming back to coach this game after an emergency appendectomy knocked her out earlier this season so you know maybe some some more promising times ahead certainly for the Gophers next season as they welcome a very celebrated recruiting class but this is an important year still for them to kind of prove that they are on the way up and not just stuck in some kind of neutral gear making the NCAA tournament this season shouldn't be a unrealistic expectation so winning that one at Wisconsin was a big deal for sure take a playcation to Mystic Lake for 24-7 gaming fun restaurants and bars and luxurious hotel rooms and join Club M to bask in the rewards Follow the lights to Mystic Lake, where every day is play day. Phil Miller joins Daily Delivery right now, covers the Twins, of course, and probably hasn't had a lot to do, unfortunately, in the last month, six weeks, however long this lockout has been going on, because what normally is the hot stove portion of the season, if you want to call it, has been uh, pretty cold, has it not, Phil? It has been boring. Uh, it reminds me of uh, the uh, the Terry Ryan regime, where uh, they would, after the winter meetings, he would shut everything down and uh, in December and uh, uh, pick up again in January. The 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 current administration, uh, the Twins, uh, usually keeps a little busier than that, and January is their big month, and uh, it's there's nothing going on. Uh, Twins wise, negotiations wise, uh, every it's uh, six weeks now. Uh, the lockout on Thursday, and uh, and uh, it's everything seems frozen in place. Now that said, it, it reports suggest that they are, the sides are going to at least meet for the first time um, in six weeks on Thursday, and you know who, who knows what comes of that if it becomes a, a, a quick you know hello and goodbye and they don't meet again for a while or if there's actual progress to it uh, how, how do you how do you read the fact that they're at least going to attempt to talk again um on thursday well 
I think what's been clear is that uh, they've decided, Major League Baseball essentially has decided that nothing can get done without a deadline staring them in the face. Nothing can get done unless there's a desperate scramble to get something done where the pressure is on. So they've, they've essentially wasted six weeks. They, uh, they know what the issues are. They uh, tried, made some modest attempt to uh, do some negotiating at the at the deadline before the uh, lockout began and they've gone dark for six weeks. Uh, it, and the entire reason is to put pressure on the players to uh, start feeling the heat that, uh, you know, we're going to, we're going to mess up the season. We're going to start spring training late. We're going to start the season late. If something doesn't get done, it's all about leverage, which is negotiating tactics one-on-one, I suppose, but it is, kind of a shame in this instance that uh, it's dragging on so long. My guess, uh, I thought they might talk a little bit in December. Now that they haven't, my guess has uh, has always been that uh, spring training would start late, probably not until a week or two into March, and that the season will end up getting pushed back uh, by a week or two uh, from the August, I mean, uh, sorry, uh, March 31st. Um, start I you know that is becomes a real danger now uh because the sides remain far apart they both issued press releases the day the lockout began making it pretty clear uh that there's still a lot of work to be done a lot of issues to be settled and uh and a lot of them are going to be contentious so I don't see any way to complete them and start spring training on time it's supposed to be uh, four weeks from now. As we think about those issues, maybe we can kind of, you know, you can outline a few of those core issues. And even if they've top been, they've been talking about these issues for years, how are they supposed to bridge that gap in a matter of weeks now at, at this point? Like, how do they suddenly come together? Is it just that deadline pressure where they don't want to miss too much and someone's got to blink at some point? Or do you think there will be an actual compromise or, or, or a fair deal at some point here? It seems clear that both sides uh, want to leverage the other into making a concession that they don't want to make. And maybe it'll happen. Uh, I have to say that the negotiations that start tomorrow, according to the USA Today, will not include any proposals on changing free agency and changing the arbitration rules. And that is a large concern of baseball's middle class. That's uh, kind of the issue for uh, um, for uh, guys who are kind of being caught in baseball's evolution towards uh, using younger and cheaper players uh, and, and being less inclined to uh, pay uh, players uh, after the age of 30, which is kind of the way the system is set up now. So there's a huge middle class of players that are not going to be very happy that uh, that um, issue isn't even going to be addressed. Um, according to uh, reports from New York, the issues that they're going to address are maybe raising the uh, um, luxury tax threshold, maybe try to find some way to disincentivize tanking, uh, maybe with a, by changing the draft rules, but nothing that is going to deliver more money, significantly more money to the vast majority of players that don't sign uh, 
nine-figure uh, long-term contracts. You know, and there's been examples on the Twins, I think, in recent years. I think a guy like Brian Dozier got a little squeezed by that. You know, a guy who yep. maybe didn't start accumulating his service time to a little bit later in his career, then all of a sudden he's 30, 31 before he can get paid and never really gets that that big payday. I'm not sure if there's any current Twins who, who specifically fall into that category but it's got to be frustrating for a player when you're under this quote-unquote cost control and you see this kind of two-class system emerge and you know where it's either the really really good players who who do get paid or it's the the you know the the cheaper young players that that are on these rosters yeah baseball has front offices have changed the game off the field as much as they've changed the game on it with the uh, shifting and uh, the use of pitching and all that, uh, they are they have uh, good evidence that uh, that younger players in their first six years, that's when uh, players are the most valuable, and that's certainly when their contracts are the most uh, uh, valuable because they're cheap. So uh, it, it's it's a difficult and another root of uh, difficulty in these negotiations is the players' association represents. The, the millionaires and the, the multi-millionaire players, uh, as well as all the minimum salary players. You know, the, the Twins used 57 players uh, last season, uh, franchise record. Um, more than 30 of them, or roughly 30 of them, were minimum salary players um, who got shuffled in and out, you know, uh, all the relief pitchers. And uh, so the union has to negotiate an agreement that helps both classes and the, and kind of the middle class uh, and the you know you mentioned Dozier nobody's crying for a guy that made close to 30 million during his career but had he reached free agency two years earlier he might have gotten a contract worth 80 million 90 million but uh, you know his, by the time he reached six years of service time um, yeah he he was already in the decline phase and never got to cash in the way uh, so many uh, so many star players do. So as we think about this not being a quick fix, you know, I'm, I'm, they're, they're not going to, there's not going to be an interminable lockout. They're not going to like 2025 with no baseball, but you know, as, as this potentially drags out for a while and maybe costs them some spring training, maybe costs them some off season, maybe costs them a start on time to the regular season. How does this impact a team like the twins that would seem to have a lot of, holes to fill issues to address after, you know, a disappointing 2021 season in which they thought they were going to be pretty good, maybe even a world series contender and ended up losing almost 90 games. Yeah. They have uh, money to spend and holes to fill. There are some bullpen holes. There are no starting pitchers on the squad with more than uh, one year of experience, except for Dylan Bundy, kind of a reclamation project that they signed uh, right before the, uh, Blackout began. Uh, the Twins are going to go through a two-week scramble to try to put together this roster, and I wonder if uh, they'll be able to accomplish that. I wonder if, um, you know, it, much of the free agent pitching, uh, so the uh, rush to the lockout uh, took a lot of the pitchers off of the market. There isn't much left to assign. That means uh, the Twins' best route to uh, adding another starting pitcher or two is through a trade. You know, uh, transactions are not supposed to be uh, going on during the lockout. You wonder if front offices are having some informal talks 
that uh, might produce some trades um, when the uh, time comes. But uh, how they're going to fill the hole at shortstop, um, the uh, you know how much they trust the uh, young guys coming up. If it's a shortened spring training, if it's uh, a uh, two-week period to uh, try to put together a roster, uh, it it could be a really patchwork year after uh, two seasons that have already been disrupted by COVID. Uh, boy, baseball just cannot find uh, a sense of normalcy that it uh, had for so long. It it hasn't, and it's you know, and unfortunately too, it's kind of one of those things where. In sports these days, the off season seems to be almost as, you know, important for, you know, for chatter, for kind of growing the game, for growing the popularity of a game as anything else. You look at NBA draft and free agency, you look at an NFL draft and free agency. Those are the times where those leagues really, you know, zoom, uh, zoom up in, in popularity and interest. And Major League Baseball is missing out on weeks, months of that at a time where popularity, frankly, has continued to dip. Yeah, not good timing. Uh, I mean, like everything else during this COVID era, it's bad timing uh, all around. Uh, and, you know, it's like, how about the players timing? The, uh, the uh, collective bargaining agreement comes up for negotiation on the heels of, you know, the two lowest attendance years that uh, baseball has had in uh in a couple of decades. So it's, uh, um, it, it is unfortunate. There would be news going on now. There would be rumors. There would be a lot of, uh, a lot of storylines to chase a lot of options, you know, but, uh, you know, is Royce Lewis going to uh, make the team is, uh, are they going to sign someone to play shortstop? And, and of course the annual questions about the pitching, uh, you know, we would be writing about this. We'd be talking about this, uh, every day. It, uh, on the heels of the explosion of long uh, three and a half hour games and, uh, and uh, the uh, lack of interest uh, that, that more and more fans are showing, I, I, I think they can bounce back pretty, pretty easily. But uh, yeah, the, the, the timing of this has been uh, pretty, uh, uh, pretty unfortunate for baseball. So should we just talk about Mike Zimmer and the Vikings coach? If you want? <laughs> I've talked about that enough. I do want to talk okay. about a, a slightly happier subject, which is Wednesday, the twins announced plans to retire Jim Cott's number, of course, going into the hall of fame, as well as Tony Oliva that announced about a month ago or so as part of that kind of, you know, next, you know, taking another look at some of these guys from past years and do they deserve to be in the hall. I think Jim Cott certainly worthy of that. Just kind of a, a nice, a nice story, something to kind of divert from the other things that are going on here. Not a surprise that they would do it because they've basically done that for anybody who is in the hall of fame. Correct. Mm -hmm. Most teams are like that. Uh, if you make the hall of fame, uh, you get uh, your numbers retired. Um, and in the twins case, you get a statue too. I, uh, there's, there's a backlog now, but I would assume uh, there's a statue of Jim Cott in the works. That's a nice little story. I mean, I don't know how much we talked about Cot and Oliva previously because that probably happened during a lot of this kind of dead period. But, you know, I think Cot was one of those pitchers that kind of went overlooked in team history. But when you look at his overall numbers, I mean, my gosh, he, he really had the counting stats to warrant, you know, some of the accolades that have now come his way. Yeah, and he would be the first guy, and in fact, this probably hurt his Hall of Fame uh, uh, chances uh, before now. Uh, he would be the first guy to admit that he was never a dominating pitcher. He was never, 
he was not the uh, Koufax and Seaver of his time, that he was just a guy that uh, was pretty good for a long time. It's interesting how uh, he kind of lost touch with the Twins, I think with Twins fans, because his, kind, his, uh, his career did go on so long. It went on for another decade after he left the Twins. And so by the time he retired, he seemed as much a Yankee or a White Sox as he did a uh, twin. And uh, he has more recently in the last few years, more uh, embraced the twins, embraced uh, that, uh, that past and the franchise. Uh, and uh, I, I think, uh, you know, he's done some uh, broadcast, some games every year. He's in town more. Uh, and, and the franchise has embraced him back. It's, it, it was interesting to me, the, how uh, the town, the city seemed to get behind Tony Oliva because he lives here and he's, you know, he's one of us for five decades and, uh, and uh, it seemed like people really wanted him to get in. And then, oh, Cot too. That's right. Cot was pretty good. It's, um, so it's kind of nice that he has uh, kind of come home, so to speak, uh, with his career and, uh, and is much more, uh, much more identifies with the Twins as evidenced by uh, the fact that it'll be a Twins logo on his cap. And about as good a broadcaster as you will find as well. Don't know how much you've heard his work over the years, oh, sure. but he is a, he's very good at that. Sure, yeah. And then, you know, there's a reason he was on national broadcasts uh, all these years. Uh, uh, you know, the guy's won like seven Emmys in addition to uh, his Hall of Fame credentials. So uh, it's, uh, it, it, it is great for him. Uh, you know, he's 83 and uh, it is... I think uh, he is enjoying the uh, kind of the renaissance of, of recalling him. Uh, you don't hear much. You really don't hear much about the Metropolitan Stadium days uh, anymore uh, around here, it seems like. And uh, so celebrating Tony Oliva and Jim Cott this summer in Cooperstown, uh, I think will be really fun for people around the franchise. Something there to look forward to, and maybe we'll look forward to, a resolution to this labor standoff. We'll see what comes of all the talks Thursday and see if something comes of that that bears some fruit in the short term or at least the medium term. And when that happens, Phil, I'm sure we will talk again. Enjoy whatever downtime you're getting here. I know it's boring, but uh, sometimes boring at least means you're getting some well-deserved rest and uh, we'll, we'll catch you again soon, okay? Okay, Mike. Look forward to it. Good to catch up with Phil Miller. As always, does a great job covering the Twins for the Star Tribune. I hope he gets more to write about soon because, you know, baseball, like I told him, it's been out of sight, out of mind for me for more than a month, um, and they're just losing a lot of this off-season goodwill that they would normally have, a lot of this off-season attention they would normally have, and, you know, people start to tune things out. It's not like they can't come back. You know, you felt like there was a point where other sports were going through some of this same thing, and they have bounced back, but baseball is in kind of a perilous point right now and I don't think they can afford to have this drag out much longer. Let's shift to the Vikings for a little while here. Some of the general manager scuttlebutt has been kind of drifting, sifting out. We covered a lot of that on Wednesday's Access Vikings podcast, so please go have a listen to that. I have a different thing I want to talk about. Actually, two things I want to talk about. Um, we haven't heard from Mike Zimmer since he was fired on Monday, other than a statement he released, and we I listed that. I read off that statement a couple days ago on the podcast. Um, what, here's what I'm thinking right now: There's Mike Zimmer has had many moments of major honesty um, in his years as Vikings head coach, and 
I, I, there's a lot of questions at this point left unanswered just be, after hearing other players talk, after kind of thinking about his eight-year tenure. So here are five questions I would love to ask Mike Zimmer. Number one, a big one. Does he think Kirk Cousins cost him his job? And that's not to say, does he think Kirk Cousins was a bad quarterback? I think objectively, nobody would say Kirk Cousins was a, has been a bad quarterback over these last four years, but we've all, you know, gone back to that quote from Zimmer before the 2018 season, before they signed Kirk Cousins at that scouting combine where he said, if we pick the wrong quarterback, I'll probably get fired. Um, let's not, you know, let's not go all in and forget kind of what got us here to this point. Let's not spend so much, uh, paraphrasing him, him at this point, but let's not spend so much that we can't, you know, keep the kind of team we've had. Now, does he think that, you know, after they brought in Kirk Cousins, they only made the playoffs one out of four years. They were right around 500 as a team during that stretch. Does he think Kirk Cousins cost him his job? in that they they were on a certain path before they spent so much money on a quarterback, and then after that they could not afford the sort of roster depth, especially on defense, needed to compete in the way Mike Zimmer wanted to compete. Along those lines, another Cousins-related question, what exactly happened during that end-of-game weirdness on the sidelines when Cousins shouted, you like that, in Zimmer's face after Cousins had rallied them in the final moments for that long field goal that rescued them in that game they were about to give away to Detroit. What exactly was that moment about? Because both of them tried to brush it off after it happened. But, you know, if you remember, Zimmer basically shoved Cousins, and I don't know if it was a, a playful shrug in some way. It didn't look like it, or if it was kind of a, you know, kind of a two guys kind of, you know, getting getting something out there. I don't know what it was, but I don't think we got a full answer in the moment. I would love to go back and ask him, what was there more to that? Because it's been lingering in my mind ever since it happened. Third question is more of a, uh, just a general question, more of an upbeat one that I would like to ask him. What do you think his greatest accomplishment was as Vikings head coach? Was it you know, turning the team around from the direction it had been in. I mean, remember they'd lost multi, they'd lost double digits, uh, double digit losses three of the four seasons before he got here: 2010, 2011, and 2013. So he came in, restored credibility pretty fast, and started competing really fast. Um, was he was he more proud of winning the division in his second year and winning that game at Lambeau? in week 17 to to clinch the division was he proud of the the 2017 season where they overcame a lot and got to the nfc title game i'd like to know what he was most proud of what his biggest accomplishment was in his time here conversely number four what was his single greatest disappointment in a season and there's plenty of candidates there whether it's individual moments or the way seasons transpired you know, was it the missed field goal in the playoffs in 2015? Was it a 5-0 and start in 2016, giving way to an 8-8 eight and eight finish without a playoff appearance? You know, was it coming up a game short of the Super Bowl in 2017? Was it you know 2018, not being able to get into the playoffs, beat the Bears towards the end to get into the playoffs? Was it these last two years where they just 
you know, weren't really competitive on defense. Um, I'm guessing it's maybe how the defense came apart, but I don't know. It, 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 when you think about it and you have a chance to kind of take it all in, you know, as a whole, there's, there's a lot to a lot to get to there. Final questions, a little bit different than disappointment. The biggest regret, you know, and that's that gets to more or less of a something that happened and more of a something you did. Uh, was it his handling of Daniel Carlson and you know not not recognizing that you had to kind of ride out a rough patch with a kicker? Was it some of the culture stuff that Eric Kendricks and Brian O'Neill were hinting at or directly getting at in their comments on Monday? You know, could he have realized some things earlier on in his tenure? Was it his relationship with Kirk Cousins that maybe turned that you know that experience in Cousins four years into a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy that did ultimately get Zimmer fired I don't know I would love to find out all of those things and more from Mike Zimmer we will see when he is available if and when when he does a sit down or or whatnot um, and, and find out his some of the answers to some of those questions at some point I hope Let's finish with the cooler. The symmetry of some statistics caught my eye as we thought about the Vikings and the end of this season. Kirk Cousins in 2021, 16 starts, 66.3% completion rate, 4,221 yards, 33 touchdowns, 7 interceptions, and an 8-8 eight and eight record. He, of course, missed that game against Green Bay so only 16 games in this 17-game season. Brett Favre in 2009 for the Vikings, we consider one of the best quarterback seasons the Vikings have ever had. 16 starts, 68.4% completion rate, 4,202 yards, 33 touchdowns, 7 interceptions, 12-4 and record. Same number of touchdowns, same number of interceptions as Kirk Cousins, Yards were within 19 of each other, similar number of pass attempts, very very similar completion rate. One of them won four more games and is celebrated. One of them lost four more games and maybe will get traded and the coach got fired and the general manager got fired. So what gives with that? I asked you guys on Twitter. I'm probably going to write about this today. A lot of factors. Um, obviously, it's easier to pass for that many yards these days. Um, you've, you've got, you know, passing rules have changed in the last 12 years um I think Favre though had a better supporting cast um including offensive line was way better in 2009 I think the playmakers were probably similar but those of you who pointed out that you know Cousins got to throw to Justin Jefferson Adam Thielen he had Dalvin Cook yeah Brett Favre had Adrian Peterson in his prime he had Sidney Rice having a you know a great season Bernard Berrien an accomplished receiver rookie Percy Harvin was a monster in so many facets of the game. Um, so I think the playmakers were kind of a wash. Um, a lot of different factors, though, up and down. Um, third downs, Favre and the Vikings were much better on third downs that season than Cousins and the Vikings were this year. I think the Favre and the Vikings, though, had an element of luck that year. You know, they pulled some games out. That San Francisco game, of course, with the Greg Lewis catch. Um, they won a game when Baltimore missed a field goal. Um I think ultimately, though, what this, what most of you wanted this to prove is that Favre had an impact beyond statistics and that there are some things, even in the advanced numbers, that showed that he had a much greater impact than Cousins did this year. So I'm going to dissect that a little bit more 
in a blog post on Thursday, but the symmetry in the numbers is what caught my eye. Cousins and Favre with almost identical statistical counting numbers in 2021 versus 2009. That will do it for today. Mark Craig should be on Friday's show with NFL Picks and probably to get his perspectives on everything that has happened in the Vikings world this week. I'm sure we'll talk some Wolves tomorrow, too, coming off of a big game Thursday night against the Grizzlies. Have a great rest of your Thursday. I'm Michael Rand. Thanks for joining me here on Daily Delivery. 